Our scripture reading today is Revelation 19, 11 through 16, and David Wright will be reading for us. So in honor of God's word, let's stand together. Listen as I read. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, pure and white, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I said at the first service, uh, someone asked, like, do you really want that text read on Easter Sunday? And uh, the answer is yeah, and, and uh, hopefully we can uh, see, see why as uh, things unfold here. Uh, my name is Matt Heron. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're really glad that you could join us uh, on this uh, Easter Sunday. And um, this, uh, you know, Easter always offers an incredible invitation uh, to consider uh, Jesus' life, uh, his death, resurrection, and to consider it kind of in a more intense way. Uh, you know, if you were to like scan over the Bible, you, you could easily make the case that the Bible is saying, live in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus every single day uh, of your life. And so we, we treat Sunday uh, as a time of revisiting the good news. That, that's, that's our objective here at, at Sojourn. We, we actually call our Sundays gospel representation. We, we want, when we gather on Sundays, for there to be a commitment to rehearsing and reflecting upon this good news, not just one Sunday a year, every Sunday. But Easter, does, it, it is a little different. Uh, in part, it's different because um, we have just walked through a season that is, is called Lent. And you know, Lent begins uh, with a, a day, uh, a Wednesday, and it's called Ash Wednesday. And as, as we consider the realities of Ash Wednesday, the, the invitation for the Christian is to look at, to look at Ash Wednesday and to realize that if there is no resurrection coming, then ash is all there is. That's all, future, that's all the future we have. From dust you came to dust you will return. From ash you came to ash you will return. And then we go through multiple weeks of considering the reality that sin has separated us from God. And that if there is no solution, then we are uh, hopeless people. And we walk through Holy Week and we rehearse the events of Jesus' last days. Uh, we gathered on, on uh, Good Friday to consider the reality of, of his crucifixion, his burial in the grave. And you know, our Good Friday service is uh, somewhat of a sobering time uh, because we, we end with the, the, the stone over the grave. We end with Jesus dead in the grave, buried. Uh, we end in darkness. Um, and now here we are, sun, Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning. And as we gather here this morning, you know, as God would have it, just a beautiful sunrise, bright sun, and uh, like this grand declaration that that darkness has been wiped away, uh, that the resurrection is indeed true, uh, that we gather here on this Easter Sunday to remember 
the good news about Jesus's resurrection. And so uh, Lent and Holy Week help us maybe a little bit, be a little bit more, our hearts to be a little bit more attuned uh, on this Sunday. Well, if that's so, that's a good thing because the message of Easter is the message that matters most when we consider what we're going to consider today. Uh, Today, we're ending our series. Uh, We've been in a series for a number of weeks uh, just titled We Believe, and it's a a walk through our doctrinal statement. And um, today, we are going to look at the section of our doctrinal statement titled The Restoration of All Things. And another way you could say that is the end of the story, the end of days. Now, it kind of depends a little bit probably on your background, but for some people, the phrase end of days or the return of Jesus is a very, very scary idea. Uh, the, the, the circle I grew up in and the time I grew up, there were books and there were movies and there were a lot of things that caused this, this idea, the end of days, the return of Jesus, to actually be something that was super, super scary, that I was never very excited about, that I didn't look at with any sort of joy. I looked at it much more with, with fear. Um, and, and maybe you don't know any of that background, but you just say, well, at the end of the story, of, of course that's scary. Mortality, uh, the unknowns, what, what is going to happen? Lots of questions. So what, what is the end of the story? That, that is what we're going to look at uh, here today. If you were here last week, uh, we talked about the kingdom of God. And part of what we recognize there is that when Jesus showed up 2,000 years ago, he brought his kingdom. What, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, some of Jesus' first words are, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so Jesus brought the kingdom in, in uh, 2,000 years ago, but he's, it's, it's not here in full. It's already, but it's not yet. And it's, we're in this in-between time. Well, today, we're going to talk about what, what's coming. We're going to talk about that very thing, uh, the, end, the end of the story. So as we've done uh, most weeks, uh, we're going to read the, uh, the statement in our, in our doctrinal statement uh, on the restoration of all things. It'll be on the screen behind me. It should also be uh, in your bulletin that you received. So the restoration of all things. We believe in the personal, glorious, and bodily return of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ with his holy angels when he will exercise his, final role, his role as final judge and his kingdom will be consummated. We believe in the bodily resurrection of both the just and the unjust, the unjust to judgment and eternal conscious punishment in hell, as our Lord Jesus, as our Lord himself taught, and the just to eternal blessedness in the presence of him who sits on the throne and of the lamb in the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. On that day, the church will be presented faultless before God by the obedience, suffering, and triumph of Christ, all sin purged and its wretched effects forever banished. God will be all in all, and his people will be enthralled by the immediacy of his ineffable holiness, and everything will be to the praise of his glorious grace. So the way we're going to tackle this statement is kind of through three movements. Jesus will return, people will be raised, shalom will be restored. So first, Jesus will return. Uh, The passage that we read in Revelation 19 uh, is a snapshot of Jesus showing back up. That's why that passage seemed to be a fitting passage to just give us one of the times where the Bible says, hey, this is part of what's going to happen when Jesus shows back up. 
You know, Christians have a phrase that they have repeated often over the centuries. And uh, maybe you're familiar with this phrase. Uh, We have a song that we sing here that uses this language. But the phrase goes like this. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Some churches use that language every single time they take communion. Uh, And it includes three powerful declarations uh, that each have eternal consequences. As you notice, two of them are past tense. One of them is future. So let's look at them quickly. Christ has died. Christ has died. The the, the message of the Bible says that if this did not happen, if the God-man did not die as a perfect substitute, as the perfect sacrifice for the sin of the world, if that didn't happen, then there could be no forgiveness. So this this declaration that Christ has died, it doesn't mean that we're glad that someone lost their life. It means that we recognize the significance of the one who gave his life and what it accomplished on our behalf. Second phrase, Christ has risen. We celebrate this every Sunday. Uh, You may be well aware of this, but here we are Easter Sunday. And the reason why we say Easter Sunday is because Jesus rose again on a Sunday. Do you know that that is why the church gathers every Sunday for the last 2,000 years? You know, the people of God in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, their day of worship was Saturday. What changed? Jesus is what changed. And when Jesus rose again on a Sunday morning, his followers came to the reality where it's like, this is such incredible news. Christ has risen. We should gather every week and remember it. Every single week, we should get together and remember that Christ is alive. And for 2,000 years, that's what's been happening. Like, think about that. For 2,000 years, people all over the globe get together on the weekly anniversary of Jesus rising again. Incredible. And the reason is, is because you know, Christians recognize that we need to more, like, more deeply gaze upon this world-changing truth. Christ has risen. Christ is risen. Christ is alive. When he came out of that grave, he conquered sin and death and Satan and all of our enemies. But you know, uh, the message of Easter, this idea of, the, the, of Christ having risen again, in some ways, it's, it's actually a very terrifying message to consider. Uh, Maybe you saw the video that was uh, sent to me uh, last weekend, but there's an author, a philosopher named Jordan Peterson, who is a a New York Times bestseller. He is uh, very, very popular on the speaking circuit, has a podcast that's listened to by uh, millions of people. Um, And and there's a video clip that's, that's recently been produced where Jordan Peterson, in an interview, is kind of wrestling with the reality of Christ. And the interviewer is asking him questions about his view of Christ. And as Jordan Peterson, and if you know Jordan Peterson, there's been some vagueness on whether or not Jordan, on what Jordan Peterson believes and whether or not he believes the Bible is true. And there's a lot of vagueness there. But in this interview, as he is wrestling, as he's reckoning with the reality of his beliefs, he actually says to the interviewer that he believes in Christ. But he actually can't believe that he believes in Christ. And he begins to cry. And as he's crying, he says, it's almost too terrifying 
to consider what that would mean. And then he says this, I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. That is the evidence of someone whose heart is being forever altered by the reality of the person and work of Jesus. Where it's it's impacting him to a degree to where he says, I don't even know what this would mean. It would change everything. Maybe you read the article this week in the New York Times from Esau Macaulay. Uh, if you don't, if you take a look, Google it sometime and take a look at it. It's, it's a great, great, uh, great article. But part of what Esau does in this, it's, it's titled The Unsettling Power of Easter. And part of what Esau Macaulay is, is, is doing is he's, he's wrestling with the fact that culturally speaking, a lot of people seem to treat Easter a little bit like time for a fresh start. Buds are starting to show up on the trees. The weather's turning nice. I can wear brighter colored clothing. It's kind of like shake off the winter blues and like fresh start. And Esau Macaulay, who is a gifted writer, we've we've had one of his books on our book wall. He, He says, it's not that that's not there at all. But if you think that's what Easter's about, you, you, you have not considered what's happening here. And what he points to is that the first people that go to the tomb and find the tomb empty are, are a group of women. And they went to the, t- to the tomb to treat Jesus' body. They did not go to the tomb expecting Jesus to be alive. When they get to the tomb and they realize that the tomb is empty... The Gospels, in various ways, declare that they are terrified. The women are scared to death about the fact that the tomb is empty. They weren't expecting an empty tomb. And Esau Macaulay goes on to say this. The only thing more terrifying than a world with Jesus dead is one in which he's alive. You know, for you and for me, it might be that the resurrection of Jesus is just another fact that's just been in the orbit of our life for years and years, maybe decades, maybe our whole life. And we think about the resurrection and we just think, oh yeah, Easter Sundays are usually pretty good. You know, the, the people dress up a little bit nicer and there's better music and the pastor usually preaches a better sermon and, you know, Easter's are just a little bit better. Do you understand what Jordan Peterson and Esau Macaulay and the women at the, at the tomb, do you understand what they're realizing? Do you you understand the power of this event, the significance? What if this is all true? Have you considered that? Have you taken it for granted? Do, Do you recognize how it would alter your heart, how it would alter your life, how it literally would change everything? I I resonate with Jordan Peterson's comments. I don't even know what that would do to a person if you fully believed it. Part of our journey as a church, week after week after week, is asking ourselves, do I believe this gospel? Has this gospel actually soaked into every crack and crevice of my heart? What would it be like to actually have my whole heart believe the gospel? To have it show up in every part of my life? What would that do to us? The power of that, the significance of that. The message of the Bible is that the resurrection changed the world. Christ has risen. Christ is risen. But this third phrase is just as significant as the other two. Christ will come again. As you may have gathered, you know, here here at Sojourn, we do like to talk about the gospel a lot. And one of the things that we say about the gospel a lot is that the gospel means good news. In other words, the gospel is not advice. It's news. 
It's a declaration about something that has happened, about a historical reality of God's work in the world. And a major piece of that news is that Jesus is coming back. When you look at these three phrases, you know, the first two phrases are powerful. And the seasons of Lent and then Holy Week up to Easter, they, they invite us to consider those first two statements, to let them change us, to look at them more deeply. But this third phrase is really our focus today. If you paid attention as that passage in Revelation 19 was read, did you catch what was being told to us there? That is a snapshot of Jesus coming again. And when he comes, he is going to come personally, gloriously, and physically or bodily. And if you look at our doctrinal statement, our doctrinal statement says those three words, that he'll come personally, gloriously, and bodily or physically. And, and, and again, Revelation 19 is one of the snapshots where we see Jesus showing up. So let me walk through those three words. He's going to come personally. Personhood. The Jesus that had friends. The, the Jesus that, that chose 12 disciples. The Jesus that worked as a carpenter. The Jesus that was born in a, in a, in a manger. That, that debated religious leaders. That died on the cross. That, that person. That Jesus. It'll be him. He's coming back personally, gloriously. You know, if you think about Jesus' first coming, the season of Advent and the lead up to Christmas, we often reflect on the realities of Jesus' birth, the condition into which he was born. Jesus was not born into a wealthy family. Jesus was born in, 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 a, in, a, in a position of low estate. He was born uh, to a teenage mom. Uh, he, he, his mom got pregnant when she wasn't married. He was born in a manger. He did not have a lot of resources. The Bible gives us this indication that he came the first time as a suffering servant, that he came to suffer and to die. That was the mission on his first coming. But his second coming? Oh, his second coming is him coming as a conquering king. It's, it's him leading an army, victorious and strong. And one of the ways that we can see that is that he shows up bodily. He shows up physically. And so this same Jesus, the same Jesus that ate food and, or ate, ate, ate food and drank drink, that he sat with the outcasts of society whose body was beaten and broken, whose body was hung on a cross until his lungs breathed their final breath, that, that body, Jesus is coming back physically. And in, Re in Revelation 19, we see that he comes back riding on a white horse, wearing a robe, wearing a crown, with a tattoo on his thigh, coming to reign and rule on a physical throne. Jesus is not coming back spiritually speaking. He's coming back physically, bodily. He's showing up here, him, his person, as a glorious ruling king. This is what the Christian church has longed for since Jesus ascended back to the Father almost 2,000 years ago. This is good news. Our one true and better king will come back. So, Jesus will return. Second, people will be raised. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul talks about this reality of, of, our, um, of what God's going to do uh, in Christ when, uh, when uh, Jesus returns and the resurrection uh, of, of people. What I want to focus on here, though, people will be raised. When I say that, here's what I mean. All people, 
death is not the end of the story for anyone. In our doctrinal statement, the language shows up that both the unjust and the just will be raised. You, you see that language in Acts 24, 15. Paul is, is preaching a sermon. He's sharing his faith with some pretty powerful people. And in the, in the presence of these powerful people, he says both the just and the unjust are going to be raised. But it's all people. Death is not the end of the story for anybody. But then it gets a little sobering. The Bible says that when Jesus returns a second time as this conquering king, he's also going to function as a judge. We see Jesus talk about these judgments in Matthew 7 and in Matthew 25. And you can, you know, just as a side note, yeah, in our culture, a lot of times you'll hear language that says, you know, I like Jesus because Jesus doesn't judge anybody. Listen, you know that you are editing Jesus if you have concluded that Jesus does not judge anyone. When Jesus returns, he returns as a judge. He is going to sit there and he is going to, he is going to judge the nations. And it is sobering because there's only two options. Only two groups. Now, I want to make it as clear as possible. Contrary to the commonly held view, the categories are not between good people and bad people. The categories are those who trust in Christ and those who trusted in something else. The Bible says that there's an eternal dwelling that is often referred to as hell for those who have not trusted in Jesus to save them. And it is not a good place. It's a place that is separated from God for eternity. There's also an eternal dwelling called the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal kingdom, for those who have trusted Jesus to save them, for those who have given up trying to save themselves. Listen, the kingdom isn't for good people or bad people. The kingdom is for God's people. There are going to be plenty of messed up people in the kingdom of God. And by God's grace, I'm going to be one of those messed up people that gets welcomed into the kingdom of God. See, a lot of us have, a, have, a, have an image in our head. And when we think about who's going to get into heaven, our default thinking is often something like this horizontal line. And there's this horizontal line. And if you're above the horizontal line, if you did enough good things to get above the horizontal line, then Jesus is going to look at you and he's going to welcome you into heaven. And if you didn't do enough good things or you did too many bad things to where you don't get over that horizontal line, then you, are, you, you, don't, you don't get into heaven. And then there's a lot of people that really hope Jesus judges on a curve. And if there's enough rascals out there, that bar will drop low enough and maybe, maybe you, can slip, you can slip in. But the message of the gospel is that there is not a horizontal line. There is a vertical line that blows up the horizontal line. And the vertical line divides people into two groups. And on the one side, it is, is the group of people that trust Jesus to save them. And on the other side is a group of people who trusted themselves or something else to save them. That's the demarcation. That is the difference. The factor and the only factor is one's relationship with Jesus. And you say, well, why? Why is that the only factor? Why is it this, you know, that I have to have this trust in Jesus or this relationship with Jesus? Well, let, 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 think about it with me. The Bible says that Jesus is coming back to wipe away all sin. Isn't that good news? To get rid of all sin, to get rid of all brokenness, everything wrong. 
Get rid of all of it. I can't wait. In 1 Corinthians 15, the passage, that, that, that we, we see snapshots of it. I can't wait. It is such good news. It is really good news until, until I realize that I have sin in me. And if the message of the Bible is that Jesus is coming back to wipe away all sin, and I'm in that category, then I am in massive trouble. Revelation chapter 3 says that everybody has sinned. Nobody is righteous. So now how do I stand? If Jesus is going to show up, how do I not get wiped away? How can I not be destroyed if Jesus is going to remove all sin? Well, friend, that is what the story of the Bible is revealing. That's the message of the gospel. That's what the gospel is answering. How can this happen? Here's how it can happen. Give up trying to solve it yourself. Let, let Jesus solve it for you. Do you realize how much of what the Bible says about saving faith is you waving the white flag? It's you giving up. If you have, if you will, give up and recognize that all of your efforts, all of your self-salvation projects are empty. They will not get the job done. If you're willing to do that, if you are trusting Jesus to wash you, if you are trusting Jesus to save you, then when he returns, you will not be swept away. You'll be swept up into the loving arms of your heavenly Father. You know, this morning in our prayer time, we read from Isaiah 25, and the prophet is looking to the future, and there's this beautiful language where the prophet says, get this, we trusted him, and he saved us. Yeah, I can't believe it either. It's a miracle. It's a stunner. It is a shocker. We trusted him, and he saved us. All you need is need. All you need is to see that your self-salvation projects will not work. Have you given up yet? Have you realized how desperately you need to be rescued? The message of the gospel is saying all people are going to be raised and they are going to be sent to a life of death or to a life of, of uh, or, or to eternal life. And Jesus invites you to come. Well, Jesus will return. People will be, will be raised. Lastly, Shalom will be restored. And that's uh, in Revelation 21. Uh, 21. Revelation 21, 1 through 5, 1 through 6. That is a passage that we, we love here, and I'm going to read the whole passage a little bit later uh, in, in the service here, but it's, it's such a powerful picture of, of what is coming. So this word shalom, you know, we, we often think of shalom, and you're probably familiar with the word shalom, and just your snap response is probably shalom means peace. And that's not wrong. Shalom is a Hebrew word that does mean peace. But it means so much more than kind of our, typically our, our shallow understanding of peace. Here's what Cornelius uh, Plantinga, this is how he defines shalom. Shalom means a universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at its creator, as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, 
is the way things ought to be. The way things ought to be. It's the world how we want it to be. It's a world where things work and things are right and our relationships are right and our bodies are right. The world made right. Well, this is only possible because of Jesus. Actually, it's only possible because of Easter. Jesus paid for it. Jesus secured it. His obedience, his death, his suffering, his triumph, the resurrection, it's all true. But the resurrection of Jesus is not the end. It's the beginning. I have often experienced confusion on this point. That, that, what, that what the Bible says is that what God did to Jesus at Easter, he promises to do for the whole creation. In Revelation 21, verse 5, this is just in beautiful, beautiful language. This is what John writes. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. So what God did in Jesus at the resurrection, he says, this is the foretaste. That resurrection life is going to pour out, and it's going to pour out all over everything. The resurrection is not the end. It's the beginning. God intends to put the whole world right. So part of the way that he does that is he puts us right. That our hearts can actually be made right with God through grace by faith alone right now. That if you trust in Jesus, all of a sudden, instantaneously, you are in right relationship with God. God makes you right with him. And then he says, to what end? Oh, incredible. You get to be part of it. So God is about this putting it right project. And when he makes you right through faith in Jesus, then he says, you get to help me. You get to be part of the Putting It Right project. And so when you see someone who is hungry or someone who is naked and you help them, you're, you're participating in the Putting It Right project. When you treat someone with dignity from the womb to the tomb, regardless of the color of their skin or their age, you're part of Putting It Right. When you share your faith with people who are far from God, who don't know the gospel message, you're part of the Putting It Right project. Why did God put your heart right? So that you could be part of the Putting It Right project. You get to be part of it. Now we recognize that we can't complete it. We can't finish it. We're, we're waiting for Jesus to come do that. We, we can't do it. But we get to be part of it. God makes your heart right so that you can be part of God's Putting It Right project. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. But you know, every time that Jesus did a miracle... Every time he did a miracle, it's like he was bringing the kingdom to bear right there. This guy could not see. Now he could see. Man, that's putting it right. This crowd was hungry. Jesus fed them. That's putting it right. This person didn't believe. Now this person believes. That's putting it right. Now here we are, invited to be part of it. See, we live in this in-between window. This mighty act of God where Jesus rises from the dead and conquers sin and Satan and death and all of our enemies. And this next great act of God when Jesus returns and sets up the earthly kingdom here. We live in between that. And so as we live in this in-between time, our invitation is to be about the Putting It Right project. We have to learn 
to live between these two moments. A recognition that we can't accomplish what only Jesus can accomplish, and yet we can be active in the project. Well, Jesus is coming back, and when he does, it is going to be unlike anything that we have ever seen. God's kingdom will be here on earth in full. Revelation 21 again, look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. When Jesus comes back and brings the kingdom, God's kingdom and his presence are going to be on earth in a way that we have never experienced. You know that idea, that that rock ballad from decades ago? Heaven really is a place on earth. That God is bringing his kingdom here and his presence is going to be here in a unique way. If you've been here through our series on doctrine, you know, one of the weeks we touched on this idea that God is omnipresent. God's everywhere. God's here with us right now. But this declaration says that God's going to be here in a unique way. That his presence is going to be here in a fullness like we've never experienced. If you keep reading in Revelation 21, guess what at the end of the chapter we find out? We don't need a son. Yeah, I know. If you know anything about geology or biology or just logic, we kind of need a son. Well, at the end of it, it says we don't need a son. God is our light. Go, Go stand out in the sun in the heat of the summer. And see what happens to your skin. This is like, what is the intensity of God's presence? It's way more than the sun. It's it's beyond our ability to understand it. It will be here with an intensity that, uh, that, that is beyond our ability to comprehend. Everything will be perfect. The curse will be reversed. Sin will be erased. All sin, suffering, sorrow will be wiped from the earth. Shalom will be restored. And in a sense, even better. The eternal kingdom is the full and completed reality of what God started in the Garden of Eden in the beginning. If you keep reading in the book of Revelation, you get to Revelation 22. And you know what we find in Revelation 22? We find the tree of life. And the tree of life is in a city. Now, we haven't seen the tree of life since it was in the garden. What's it doing in a city? Why is the tree of life even there? What's it, why is it in a city? Well, here's, here's one perspective. One perspective is that the reason why we see the tree in a, in a city at the end of the story is that the holy city is the city that God wanted Adam and Eve to build. God created Adam and Eve and he gave them the garden and he said, cultivate it. Make something of it. I, I created you. You're creative. They'll make something of it. Adam and Eve failed, but God didn't. And at the end of the story, we have a garden city with the tree of life in the center. Shalom. Shalom that was vandalized by the sin of Genesis 3. Shalom has been restored, and it can never be vandalized again. Perfect harmony. God with us and us with each other. You know, on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And what he meant by that was, my mission, my first coming, the mission for my first coming is completed. But you know, in Revelation 21, verse 6, he says it again. Jesus says, it is done. 
This time what Jesus means is that the whole story is done. That God's enemies are fully and finally defeated and God's people are fully and finally saved. God will be at the center of everything and his glory, his truth, his beauty, his goodness, they will be on full display. Now I want to spend our last few minutes on on this idea. Our, Our doctrinal statement ends with a declaration that this is all to the praise of God's glory. And I've noticed over the years that that can bother some people. Because they're like, what's the deal with God and needing glory? Like, you know, maybe you're familiar with one of Paul's letters. He says, everything you do, do it for the glory of God or do it to the glory of God. And churches often will use language like, for the glory of God. What, what's the deal with that? Why does God want all this glory? Is God an egomaniac? Is, is God on a power trip? Did God create me because he has a need for more glory? Well, he, here's what I want you to think about. What did God do in the beginning? What's the story of Genesis 1 and 2? Think about how God created this place. When God created the world, he created a space and an opportunity for others to flourish. God created plants and trees. And you know what he said? I want these plants and trees to yield abundant produce. God put some fish in the ocean. And you know what he said? I want the oceans to teem with fish. God created Adam and Eve, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. He said to Adam and Eve, here's a garden. Make something of it. That word cultivate is the same word that we get, uh, the, where we get the word culture. He's saying, build something. Re- re- reflect my creativity and make something of this place. Go for it. You, you see, God in his creative design, he didn't make the world because he needed more glory He already has it. He made the world so that people people and animals could flourish, so that their beauty and creativity could be on display. And where do they get that beauty and creativity? Well, God gave it to them. So when creation flourishes, when it displays truth and beauty and goodness, when it shows its glory, it naturally brings brings glory to the God who made it all. Uh, Another way to think about this is, the greatest way that we bring glory to God is when we, just, when we live by design. When we actually believe that what God says is good is good. That what God says is wrong is wrong. That we recognize that all of God's laws, they're not arbitrary hoops to jump through. They're actually an invitation to the good life. That this is actually God saying, I made you for this. If you'll walk in my way, trust me, it will turn out good for you. This is how it's supposed to be. And when we live like that, our true beauty shows, our true glory shows, and it is like a mirror that shines back. Wow, who could have created that? Who would have ever created that? Well, listen, that is what the eternal kingdom is going to be like every single day. A kingdom full of people who are living perfectly by design, who don't have to fight our hearts and our desires to do what God wants. We will do it. We'll want to do it. It will be how we live our lives. And the whole kingdom will be that way. The lion is going to lay down with the lamb. It's going to be an incredible reality. So it isn't we have to give all of our glory so God gets glory. It's not a zero-sum game. 
Our glory magnifies God's glory. Our glory, in a sense, reveals God's glory. It's connected. Our glory points to it. Our flourishing shows his goodness. God's not afraid that you're going to take it away. He's not on an ego trip. Here's what he's concerned about. He is concerned that you would confuse his glory. He is concerned that you would misunderstand who he is and what he's about. That you, like Adam and Eve, would believe the lie that he's keeping things from you instead of offering you the way of life. He tells us over and over again that if you will just come to him, if you will lose your life, guess what? You will find life. You will find meaning. You will find bread and water for your soul. God does not invite us to worship him so that we're squashed and he's exalted. He's already exalted. And if you're really worried about this, look, the psalmist says if we don't do it, the rocks and the trees will take care of it. God, God, the worship of God is going to happen. God is exalted. Well, that same God is the one who's coming back. And he's coming back to make this whole place new and set up that very kingdom. And when he does, you're going to see that being immersed in his holiness, being immersed in his glory, is what you have been longing for your whole life, whether you know it or not. It is what you were made for. Now, let me, last comment. Like, this might sound like wishful thinking. Like, you might say, man, I've seen enough Disney movies. Like, I know all about the happy endings. That's not real life. We, you know, we, we think this sounds like a fairy tale. But what if the reverse is true? What if the reason why fairy tales and happy endings stir our hearts so much is because they're actually the reflection of the real story. They're actually the reflection of the story that your heart wants because that's actually what's coming. That's the end of the story, is a renewed world where the glory of God is on display and all of his creation is in perfect harmony. The curse reversed, shalom restored. Well, it's not just an if. That is the reality. This story, the story of God, the story of the gospel, is the one story from which all other stories flow. Don't miss it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this incredible uh, idea, this, this, this uh, future that is coming, the restoration of all things. God, all, of the, all these words, all, all, this whole sermon, just, just scratching the surface of the beauty of what you're promising. And we thank you that the invite is so, so simple. Lose our lives. Wave the white flag. Recognize that our self-salvation projects will never get it done. That there is one who can rescue us. There is one who can actually do something about the sin that dwells in us so that we will be swept up into your arms instead of swept away. God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We, we long for the coming of your eternal kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.